I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. What's up, New Hampshire? <laughs> Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Later in the show, we'll talk to one of the many candidates running to be the Democratic nominee for president. Washington Governor Jay Inslee is here. All right. Let's talk about the news from this weekend. Uh, president has been tweeting up a storm, uh, including one with lots of capital letters and exclamation points where he assures us, quote, I am not frustrated. <laughs> I am not frustrated. I'm not frustrated. You're frustrated. Why? I'm not. Why you? You're you're shout. You're shouting. I'm not shouting. You're shout. Why are you shouting? You're. I'm making a scene. What do you call this? Uh, but his most notable tweet was about Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar, uh, who's recently been the target of multiple death threats and anti-Muslim bigotry. Uh, a few days ago. Right-wing internet people dug up the video of a speech she gave earlier this year at the Council on American-Islamic Relations, where she said that the Muslim Civil Rights Organization was founded after 9-11, quote, because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. Conservatives expressed outrage over the phrase, some people did something, and then Trump tweeted a video that spliced together Omar saying that with phrases of, uh, with images of the World Trade Center burning on 9-11. Um, Tommy, I want to start with the conservative reaction to Omar's comments. Representative Dan Crenshaw said that they were, quote, unbelievable and suggested that Omar was minimizing 9-11 by refusing to use the word terrorist. Um, Brian Kilmeade of Fox and Friends said, quote, you have to wonder if she's an American first. Um, what, what do you think Omar meant by her comments and why did conservatives pick this old speech to pounce on yeah, Dan Crenshaw, uh, Republican congressman, retweeted this. He was also the one who famously went on SNL uh, and said, Americans can forgive each other. We can still see the good in each other. So it was a, <laughs> not a particularly charitable retweet by him. So uh, Ilan Omar was speaking to CARE, which is a Muslim civil rights group. And she was speaking right after the New Zealand shooter uh, shot up two mosques and killed 50 people. And she was talking about how after a tragic event like this, Muslims are often told to lay low, maybe don't go to prayers, maybe don't wear your hijab in public. Um, and, and ironically, you know, after ISIS does something or, you know, there's a nine, then Al Qaeda does an attack, uh, they're told the same thing. And they're asked to reassert their commitment to America or denounce all Muslims, which are things that I'm not asked to do after the New Zealand shooter, a white guy, a white terrorist shoots up uh, a bunch of Muslims. And so she's talking about the erosion of civil liberties for Muslim Americans and how they've been treated like second class citizens. And so Dan Crenshaw and Donald Trump sweep in to prove her point for her uh, and twist her words 
and, and take them out of context. And so, and the reason Trump did this is political, right? He sees her and he does not hear her words. He doesn't hear that what she said sounds a lot like what George W. Bush said just after 9-11 when he said, the people who knocked down these buildings will hear from all of us soon. She, the people who knocked down the buildings, he just called them the people? That's right. He sees her skin color and he sees that she wears a hijab. Uh, and he twists it for political purposes. And it is so cynical, especially if you know who she is. I mean, Ilhan Omar, uh, her family left Somalia in 1991. They lived in a refugee camp for four years because there was a civil war in Somalia uh, before moving to the United States. Any hope that she and her family might have had of moving back to Somalia was destroyed by Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, Islamic extremist groups. So I think she understands the horrors of terrorism. Um, So, you know, he, he, they tweet these things because it's good politics, but the, the unfortunate reality is, it, you know, it increased risk to her. I mean, the, the Coast Guard individual who was arrested recently, uh, who had a kill list of a bunch of liberals, had her name on it. So it's a really cynical, nasty thing uh, to do, and it's, it's, it's something we all should be condemning. Also, in that same speech, she talked about how proud she is of her country, how much she loves America, and there's a bill to help um, provide benefits for survivors of 9-11 and first responders that she is a co-sponsor of that Dan Crenshaw is not. Alyssa, why was Trump a particularly bad messenger uh, on this when it comes to 9-11? Well, like, let's, let's start at the beginning. Um, well, no, look, so th- this all sort of got going with the New York Post cover of right. the towers coming down and Elon Omar's comments, right? So, so who are Donald Trump's friends? the people who own the New York Post, which the best part of this was that the Yemeni bodega owners actually boycotted it and are no longer selling the New York Post currently in their bodegas because of how because of how um, irresponsible his comments were. But, like, you guys, what is the one thing we know about Donald Trump? He's a New Yorker. Like, he... He is nothing but a New Yorker. Like, what? I mean, I guess he's president, but he's... Nobody is! And so what he did is he turned the cities, it's like, yes, the, the country's worst moment, but the, the city that he purports, well, I mean, he doesn't purport anything. I mean, he lived there. <laughs> and he decides to, you know, go ahead and just turn something that was so terrible that he lived through into this, like, disgusting, spliced political video, which, like, I want to know who paid for. Like, the White House tweeted it out. Did the White House splice her comments into the towers burning? And, like, just to say, as someone who was not, who is a New Yorker, but who was not there during 9-11, I I did work in the World Trade Center, and I could not imagine ever saying anything like what he is doing, and he's our president. Well, I I would also say, on the day the towers fell on 9-11, Donald Trump called into a radio station and bragged that his building would now be the tallest. The, uh, yeah, which the, is actually not true. The tallest building brag on 9-11. And it, it's one of the strangest moments because even in the moment, Donald Trump is like, I can't believe I'm how, how bad a person I am. Uh, <laughs> which is rare to hear in his voice. Uh, he also uh, pretended to clean up the rubble on 9-11. That's another one of his greatest hits. And even that too, he, he knows when he lies about 9-11 that it's even for him wrong. Uh, so when he talked about, he said, I went down to the rubble. I even cleaned it up for a little bit. Yeah. 
Yeah, he had to. He threw in a little bit, like he knew he, it was bullshit. But he like, was you like, know that if I, he I helped a little bit. Did yeah, I helped clean a it bit. up. He'd be making them pass the 9/11 responders bill because he'd want in. Right. He also, by the way, cheated the system to get a small business loan that is reserved for small businesses that have been affected by 9/11, and he applied to cheat and take that loan for his own companies. Also, so, it was, and it was like 15 grand. He is not a billionaire. These are not billionaire level grips. So anyway, so this happens. It's gross. It's Donald Trump being Donald Trump. It's the right wing being the right wing. So then the then the controversy moves over to how should the Democrats respond to this? Okay, so that this is what's happening over the weekend. So many, including um, most of the presidential contenders. Uh, accused Trump of inciting violence. Um, others, like Nancy Pelosi, didn't go quite as far. Some didn't mention Ilhan Omar's name specifically in their statements. This then caused an uproar. What do we think about all this, Dan? Start with you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like any of it. <laughs> Just a couple of things that are worth knowing here, which is one, every Republican who talked about this knew they were full of shit, right? This was a completely bad faith argument. Like, what they do is they troll the internet and look for someone, something or anything that can fuel the outrage machine. And if that is a woman of color, all the better. That's a woman of color wearing a hijab. That is exactly what they want, because they want to scare the shit out of white people. Like, that is their political strategy. So they did that. So then the Democrats respond to that. And there were great responses. There were okay responses. And there were some bad responses. And they ran the gamut from understanding what Trump was trying to do, right? Which is to, and I think this is very important because if you, like, it is important to understand that the argument is made in bad faith. So if you, in in your response, like Kirsten Gillibrand, who we love, but I did not love her response, uh, it talks about minimizing the th- what happened on 9-11, then you were- Insinuated that perhaps Ilhan Omar Yes, yeah, so you're, you're accepting the, the bad faith, you know, on faith, right? You are, you're, you're accepting the premise of the argument. Like, that is a problem. There are people who mentioned her name, there are people who didn't mention her name, and Democrats got very upset about it. And I have a couple things to say about that. One is, you have, like, the Democratic candidate that I want is one who knows the Republicans are full of shit, but we'll call them out on it, right? So it's not just, are you going to mention Ilhan Omar's name? Are you going to attack what Trump said? Is I want someone who's going to call out why Trump and the Republicans are doing this, right? This is a game they're going to play every single fucking day. So they have to explain, like, like why, why is it they want to scare Americans by distorting the words of a Muslim American congresswoman? What are they trying to distract from? Is it the corruption, the criminality, the fact that we have an energy lobbyist who now runs the interior of the United States? Like, that is what they are trying to do. And call it out for what it is. Instead, Like, we have to call out the game instead of playing the game. The other thing I'll say is, people got vi- Democrats got very mad about this. And I think we should put pressure on our leaders to do a better job. But we also have to recognize that the entire fucking world is on fire. And we are not one killer tweet away from solving this whole Trump problem. So, like, <laughs> let's, if Nancy Pelosi's first tweet wasn't great, let's tell her that. But Nancy Pelosi's also pretty fucking great. She's doing a lot of other great things. And let's move on. Yes. It, 
It is like the it is the deeply un, deeply frustrating unwritten rules of politics though that we we were observing in real time, which is that so Elon Omar said uh, a, a comment about APAC that people viewed as suggesting that the only reason you support the state of Israel is for political donations that she apologized for. She said another comment that people thought might have been suggesting that uh, members of Congress who support Israel had dual loyalty and. Thus, so when Dan Crenshaw retweeted the Imam of Peace, an Australian uh, Imam that I'm sure he follows regularly and is constantly retweeting, it wasn't <laughs> forwarded by some right-wing organization saying, "Hey, retweet this to kick up a shitstorm." People were like, "Oh man, she stepped in it again." Well, we won't necessarily full-throatedly defend her this time, and that is bullshit because we need to evaluate each of these things on the merit. And it is so clear that she was no way minimizing the 9/11 attacks. Uh, and it was just political gamesmanship. And, and the, the, the press corps and the sort of body politics scores these things in this weird sort of meta way, and it is, it is garbage, and I'm glad that a lot of Democrats rejected it. It's also, let's be very clear, this was a fucking plan. Yeah, which absolutely. Which is someone found this, they're like, who is the best person to raise this point? Who would be absolutely. unassailable person to do it? And they picked Dan Crenshaw because he's a Navy SEAL who served, I think, five tours yep. overseas. And he has become this, like, you, Republican we're supposed to respect because he was on, made fun of on SNL Because Pete Davidson attacked him. Yes. I do think, I, like, I wonder how we deal with situations like this overall because you could imagine a controversy like this taking up every weekend, every week from now until 2020. That's the fucking plan. Well, right? that's, the, that's yeah. their plan. And, look, on one hand, you can't say... Just ignore this, Democrats. When, when, when Trump does something like that, when he attacks um, Ilhan Omar, you know, takes her words out of context, tries to incite bigotry, potentially violence, like, we should just, you can't just say we're going to ignore it. But at the other hand, on the other hand, we also can't just let ourselves be consumed by it, you know? And so I wonder what sort of the, the strategy is here to make sure that we hit back and call out their bullshit when they do it, but then sort of move on to the next thing and not let them own the whole narrative on this. Yeah, I think I think it is just what Dan is saying. I think it is pointing out that this is the strategy and this is the plan and this is going to happen again and again and again. I think to Tommy's point, I think one of the reasons they would choose to do this is because there was blood in the water from last time. And uh, they saw how with just a little bit of bad faith, they could get uh, Democrats to say things against Democrats on the APAC stage, right? That, that has value to them. We're stuck, right? We're, we're talking about it right now. It was the first story, right? We're talking yeah. about it. We're not talking about the things we want to be talking about because uh, this does command attention. It matters when a president uh, uses incredibly anti, uh, anti-Muslim sentiment and, and uses it to try to delegitimize a Democrat because they don't like the color of her skin and they think it's politically useful to them, even if it stirs up the kind of animus that will cause some person to take matters into their own hands because that's what's happening again and again and again. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's the, it's the central problem to Trump, right? What do you do when the person in, in, in the office is so fundamentally unfit, it should take all of our attention all the time when defeating him depends on talking about anything else. I, yeah. It's hard. It's also, by the way, we've been talking about these comments the whole time, but, like, let's remember... Donald Trump ran for president on the promise that he would ban all Muslims from the country, from coming to the country. He called it the he ban. The <laughs> remember, the, his press people were like, it's not a ban. He's like, it's a ban. 
So it's like trying yeah. to figure out like what they meant by this, what they were trying to do. Like we know what he was trying to do. He ran for president saying, I want to ban all Muslims from coming to the country. And then he instituted a travel ban that affected all Muslim majority countries. She's, <laughs> she's talking about how Muslims are treated like second class citizens and the erosion of their civil rights. And he swoops in to prove her point. You know yeah, what I mean? right. So we just have to call that out time and again because it's the right thing to do. And I think ultimately being strong in the face of that kind of bullshit, people will see through it and they will understand it. Oh. Um, I want to move on to a story that's been a little more under the radar, but every bit is alarming. Uh, in three different states, Republicans have recently passed fetal heartbeat laws that ban abortions as early as six weeks into a woman's pregnancy, um, sometimes before many women even know they're pregnant. In the past, courts have ruled that similar laws are unconstitutional, but with Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, uh, anti-abortion activists are making a renewed push to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, Alyssa, how alarming is this? And what do we know so far about Brett Kavanaugh's views on abortion since he's become a Supreme Court justice? So this is sort of the result of everybody paying attention to this fake war he's waging against Elon Omar, right? We're all talking about that. Very few people know that in, and I wrote this down because I didn't want to get it wrong, North Dakota, Iowa, Kentucky, Mississippi, Ohio, and soon to be signed in Georgia is the heartbeat ban. The reason, as Fab said, that this makes abortion illegal after a detectable heartbeat, which is approximately six weeks, which is before most women know they're pregnant. The reason that, you know, some sort of like liberal folks aren't that worked up about it is because they're like, well, it's still illegal. It's illegal under Roe v. Wade. These laws are illegal. But this is the whole point. They want these cases to be brought up to the Supreme Court where we have Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh, who Susan Collins said... He says Roe v. Wade is settled law. Okay. Allegedly. And thanks, Joe Manchin, for endorsing Susan Collins. Like, thank you, goodbye. But <laughs> I'm so- sorry. I can't oh, no, stand it. We're, we're all mad. Stop we're reminding all mad us of the news. Oh, okay, I'm glad we're mad. Don't yell at me. It's not my fault. But the... The sort of the, where this is getting to an even crazier place is that in Texas, there is actually a law that's been passed that says a woman who has an abortion can be eligible for the death penalty. Like, this is where we're at. And none of you knew that, did you? No one knew that. And that's really happening. And you know what I just have to end with is like, what about the fucking dudes? How come, like, the woman didn't get pregnant on her own, but she, she is going to go on death row and like all these conservative dudes are like yeah it's her fault so she's gonna go on death row but he's fine and so but this is what's happening when we all pay attention to the stupid stories that trump kicks up every day is that the republicans are super organized and this is happening in every state which is why like when everyone starts talking about 2020, which is great and it's sexy and it's exciting, it is nothing compared to the local elections that are happening all the time where this stuff happens. So, Obviously, we can't do anything about the Supreme Court right now. We're waiting for a presidential election in 2020. What can be done on a state level to protect uh, access to abortion? So one, I think that everybody should sign up at their local NARAL or NARAL National, N-A-R-A-L, um, and follow because Elise Hogue, who is the executive director and the organization, are really doing everything they can to make sure that everybody knows what is at stake in their region, in their state, in their city, in their town. And um, they have been super uh, active, especially through Kavanaugh, and um, because it's 
I mean, the thing is people just have to realize what's happening in their community. That's the most important thing. And a number of states that have democratic majorities, right, can pass laws protecting they can. Issues, right? they can. They can. Pass. And they can. And, 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 and some of them too. have. And some of them since uh, since Kavanaugh, uh, since the election and since Kavanaugh was put on the court, several states have passed um, pr- protections for abortion in case Roe was overturned. OK. Well, that's good news. Yeah. Um, OK. We will be right back with more news after this. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Now it's time for OK Stop. We'll roll a clip. The panel can say, okay, stop at any point to comment. Because it's Palm Sunday, I thought we'd enjoy a clip from the Fox News journalist who most often causes me to smack my face with my palm. (laughs) (laughs) I'm speaking, of course, of everyone's favorite Fox News host who ties his hood in a bow tie, Tucker Carlson. (laughs) (laughs) Last week, he was pretty mad Democrats were making it easier to vote. Let's take a look. Lowering the voting age to 16. You for that? Again, I think what we're trying to do with HR1 is safeguard against voter suppression. <laughs> you think it's a okay, joke? Okay, stop. That's a that's former not, Clinton advisor? Who is that? I don't know who that is. Never seen him in my life. It's not, uh, I will say, Tucker Carlson does not know how to laugh. No. Um, <laughs> it is hysterical. Yeah, he laughed like, uh, like he just pushed somebody into a pool who's wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> In a lot of states in the country, children should vote. Look, in in a lot of states in the country, people are taking measures, closing polling places, reducing the number of days for early voting. Well, it's it's, it's an attempt to whip up racial hysteria, and actually, African American voters in the last couple of elections, in a lot of places, have a much higher turnout than white voters. Okay, stop. I just, 
not all of them are not voting. Yeah. Well, it's just like, because black turnout is up, then suppression hasn't happened anywhere. No, exactly right. right. In a lot of places, black turnout is up. Well, the places where the voter suppression is occurring, it is down, you fucking prick. That is yeah. the whole point. And, um, but also, I was just saying, like, there are laws in place to try to suppress the vote. Sometimes they worked, but sometimes they didn't. Yeah. And, and it's <laughs> sometimes also people overcame those laws. One, one huh? of the reasons one law was overturned, one of the laws he's saying wasn't passed because it's for racial, racial reasons, the, the court overturned it by saying it targeted African-Americans with surgical precision. That is the <laughs> exact Carolina. quote from yeah. the court ruling about yeah. these laws. That's all. The idea that there's, I'm sure that there is crummy voting behavior, maybe even suppression in isolated places. Okay, but stop. Okay, so that he made a deliberate choice to ditch the bow tie. Why? <laughs> he looks like he beat up uh, a local prep school kid and took that tie that he's wearing. Also, very, very I'm not sure how that fight played itself out. <laughs> <laughs> very, uh, very subtle imagery with the uh, black donkey there, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah the opposite of the truth, actually, as well. No, we because I think the they'd be voting in bigger numbers still if they were... They have they a higher turnout than white voters. But, but so I'm mean, just what, what, So let's not... Let's be real okay, for a stop. second. Like that. How's that possible? All the Democrats who are like, you know what? We should just go on Fox more. Just go on Fox more. This fucking guy hasn't said two words. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a fair fight when you go on. He's also they waving a teal marker, which <laughs> is strange. <laughs> Like, this, this isn't some environment where they let you on the show and they're like, let's yeah. have a fair wow. debate. John, I don't know why Democrats didn't debate on this network. Right. Yeah, fair. Yeah, like, I feel like. And not racist. Finally, a Democratic voice is breaking through to Tucker's viewers <laughs> and cracking that delicate lattice work of propaganda that's. Not, that may be a lot of things. It's not suppression. So let's stop saying that because it scares people. Well, no, it, it's, it's a demonstrable fact. Take Georgia as an example. Well, you know what happened. There were all these people that were stripped from their voter rolls who were disproportionately black. I mean, you call that what it wants. It's, okay. It feels like voter suppression. Racializing everything only makes people okay, hate stop. each other. Okay, stop. <laughs> Racially, racializing everything is on the wall in the bathroom at Fox. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's their mission statement. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It's, they, 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 they print it on stress balls. <laughs> there is bias in the country. Let's expose it. But saying there's suppression when African-American voters vote in a higher percentage than white voters, it's just, it's a terror attack. But if you're stripping people out and it so happens that they're disproportionately black, you call that what you want. I'm just looking at a fact. I'm not putting a label on okay, it. I'm just stop. looking at I'm not sure we sent our best here. No. <laughs> I think he's doing okay. I actually think he's doing okay. I want to be fair. I think he's doing okay. Fact. Okay. It's fact. a you fact face analysis. To so those people, it's actually not I'm funny. Yeah. No, I know it's not. That's why it's so Okay, stop. Wait. I like he's that. He's right. It's not funny. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something. No, wait for it. Go for oh. it. Richard, thank you very much. Sure. 900-foot, one-bedroom apartments in San Francisco, rent for just 4500 bucks a month. And if you can afford the rent, you'll be able to see for yourself just how repulsive San Francisco's trash-covered, <laughs> syringe-laden streets have become. <laughs> Our investigation into the crumbling state of California. Straight ahead. All right, let's talk about 2020. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 wait. John. John, how dare you? And that's okay. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Back to you. Uh, 
So 2020, since we're here uh, in the home of the first in the nation primary. <laughs> easy pander, easy pander. Very easy. Um, two more Democratic candidates who'd been in an exploratory phase uh, officially kicked off their presidential campaigns this weekend. South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg and New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. There we go. Okay. Wow. Very interesting. Tell Corey us Booker how you really feel. Um, Who was the other one? Cory Booker. <laughs> Cory Booker. Uh, so I want to start with Mayor Pete. <laughs> I don't know what. Okay, Bernie. Yeah, he's, in a, he's also a candidate. Um, <laughs> anyone? Yeah, we we're going to be here a long time for everyone yells out all the candidates. We can't name them all. Anti Game of Thrones. <laughs> 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 uh, I want to start with Mayor Pete, whose meteoric rise in the polls can be traced directly to the Pod Save America interview he did with Dan last month. You're welcome, Mayor Pete. It's the Dan bump. Dan, Pete raised more money than all but three other Democrats. He's probably received the most glowing media coverage of any Democrat running. Um, what are his challenges now? What does he need to do to make sure this is more than just a moment for him? He has to take the momentum he has, the money he has, and turn it into an organization that can run a real campaign in the four early primary states to set him up to have a chance to compete in all the rest of the states that come right after South Carolina. Right? It is, you can get lots of press coverage, you can raise lots of money, but if you do not take the opportunity you have when you have it and translate it, translate it into, as everyone here in New Hampshire knows, a real campaign filled with organizers and volunteers that go door to door and build a true grassroots organization. If you don't do that, then you'll just have your moment in the sun and it'll, and it'll be someone else's turn. And do you think when a candidate has the momentum and sort of excitement behind them that Pete currently does, that obviously, even if you're starting very late building an organization as he is, because he did not obviously expect to get this far, um, do you, it, that obviously helps build that organization. Do you think there's enough talent organizers on the field right now? Oh yeah, for sure. I think there are a lot of people who have been holding their fire. You know, there have been very few endorsements from Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, et cetera, like political leaders, elected leaders, because they're looking at this huge field that is huge, filled with very talented people, and, be, and they're sort of holding their fire for later on. I think the, for Mayor Pete, the challenge is going to be figuring out what his path is, right? Like, where is he going to compete? How is he going to compete? And how can you maintain this momentum, right? Like, right. generally, you want to um, have your momentum late, right? Like, we know from having worked for President Obama, we came in the race in two th early 2007, huge gangbusters, huge first quarter fundraising, and then it was a fucking slog until the month before Iowa. Right. We were down 30 points in the polls to Hillary, and we hit our momentum right, right in Iowa at the very last minute there. That was we right about when you guys sent me to New Hampshire. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and, and so the question, so the question. And for Mayor, I just want to also say, Dan, I want to thank a New Hampshire that decided to make 26-year-old, very sad gay speechwriter who's very tired hold out hope for another six months. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dan. So the question for Mayor Pete is, <laughs> like, this, this momentum will go away, right? In, it's, momentum comes and goes, but organization is what sustains. So will we be able to build an organization that can get him through what will invariably be ups and downs of a campaign in slow months to when it actually matters is when people start voting. Yeah. 
Uh, Alyssa, what do you make of the Mayor Pete phenomenon? So a couple things. You you guys know that I have a very different perspective than some other people. You know, so I thought that like I watched Mayor Pete's entire event today when I was on my way here and just kind of building up to it. I think that the one thing he's done really well is that I think that his campaign has like a real aesthetic and like an ethos. Like, you know what Mayor Pete stands for. You get a sense like you go to his website. He has like the media toolkit, like just some like very sort of granular things that I look out for and care about. Um, But I think they've done a really good job of like slowly building under the radar to today. And so he had this, this like, I thought very good launch. He had, you know, I would just caution anyone who's like announcing for president, just like fewer people in your pre-program because it's kind of a buzzkill. But, um, (laughs) but no, you know, I, I think that he came out with like a really good, like, I feel like I know a lot more about who he is and what his campaign's about than I do some of the other candidates. We, we, we said when um, he first announced an exploratory committee and he came out with that video when most people barely knew who he was, right. you instantly were like, oh, generational change, there's his message, right. there's his story, it fits with his identity. It he seems comfortable too. You know, like some people are like preaching, you're like, okay, I get you think that's what we want to hear. But I feel like that's really kind of, I think that he's being, for lack of a better word, like pretty authentic and that his campaign is really fueled by people who get what he's about, win or lose. You know, I feel like he's got all the right people on board to help him. Uh, What did you guys think of the speech today? I mean, I thought Mayor Pete's speech forged an emotional connection with the listener. When he talked about his parents uh, needing health services and the fact that his husband, who you know several years ago he would not have been able to marry, could be there because of laws that were passed. Like it, it, it made me understand who he is and his values and why he cares about change on a deep emotional way. And, and you contrast that with some of the other speeches we've seen. Like for example, Cory Booker's speech was also this weekend, and like he is an incredibly passionate, uh, intense, emotional person. But that speech was less a story about himself and what he'd done in Newark. Uh, and the things he cares about than a litany of policy areas. Like Mayor Pete's speech was actually pretty policy-free yeah. uh, in, in a strange way. But it, I connected with what, you know, that emotional story just because of that's how humans work. We, we connect with stories. That's how we learn. That's how we understand things, right? So it's a good lesson for anyone who wants to run for any office. You have to make your audience understand who you are and what you care about because that makes you believe while you be for them. And, and so, I, you know, I get the Pete Boomlet. I really do. Like I, most, most, I feel like most speeches, I mean, are platitudes. Like, I mean, let's just be honest. Right. That's sort of what the announcement speech is. Take but that, I think speech writers. That, How dare take, you? I, okay, when How it's artfully you? done. All right. Shame on you. But well no, written platitudes. What I was we invite say you to come with us. We love having you around. We think of you as a dear friend. I, <laughs> Look, we get on the stage. It's just, you just might as well just you want to bury my career in the ground. What about John's? Platitudes make the world go round. I drive with platitudes on my Ford Escape. I'm just saying that like he did a good job of punctuating the platitudes, as Barack Obama did, with personal stories. Hey Alyssa, what's the name of your book with a bunch of emotional stories that made me feel and want to know you better? Oh, do you mean so here's the thing? Well, I I, I will say this. You're absolutely <laughs> right about the story thing, right? Because the, the people who say Oh, yeah, I mean, so like he, he didn't have a ton of policy. There wasn't like a ton of, of substance, right? But yet 
it was an emotional speech that forged a connection, right? So all the people who say like, oh, you just got to have policy and substance. Of course you do. That's the basis of any campaign. The person who's leading with the most policy in the campaign right now is Elizabeth Warren, right? Right. Um, but I will say this. Elizabeth Warren's announcement speech, which she did in Lawrence, mm -hmm. and she told a story about a strike there. She told a story about her own life. That was an excellent announcement speech as well. Yes. Why was that an ex excellent announcement speech? Not because she rattled off all her policies in that speech. She did not. She right. again told a story about who she was mm -hmm. and her rationale for running. Well, and like obviously, like Pete at s at some point soon is going to have to have some substance. Like right, like I think in that I think his speech, the ending of his speech was beautiful and powerful and 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 very good. I think the parts where he talks about like freedom, security, democracy. that's fine. You know, like that's yeah, that's that's a rationale. But like whatever, that'll that'll be filled out with substance. But I think the emotional parts of that speech, the parts that really connected, were the parts about his life you know, and, and what he's doing in the race and what's driving him to run for president and want to serve. And I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I also think, you know, in addition to what Dan pointed out to you about organizing, I do think a challenge for all of these candidates who are all being very ambitious because they know where they're, they, they know who they're trying to reach and where their heads are at right now. Very ambitious in painting, telling a story about a fundamental shift, right? That's a, not just away from Trump, but there's been an embrace of very big ideas and big policies and, and accepting the notion that America needs big changes. That's part, partly how we ended up in this mess and kind of facing and reckoning with big problems. And they're all struggling to put forward pr platforms that rise to that level. But I think even that's true for Cory Booker, that will be true for Mayor Pete, making sure that when he does put forward policies, it reaches the heights of the kind of rhetoric and story he's telling about America. That's true. That's, that's necessary. And we always say in Obama world that campaigning is about telling a story, about the moment we're in, how we get out of that moment, and why the candidate is the be person uniquely suited to get us out of that moment. That's right. And so you have to have a good story. But I think what is important to Mayor Pete's rise is it in this totally fucked up media environment where we're supposed to talk about Ilan Omar and everyone's tweets and a thousand channels and a thousand options, being able to tell your story to people, like how do you get it from your mouth into people's brains is a fundamental part of a campaign. Because we have a lot of candidates with great stories, but how do you make it that people know who you are and know why you're running? And Mayor Pete, to his great credit, has found a way to break through in this environment, a way that a lot of other candidates haven't. Yeah. And that is important to someone just in a primary of a thousand people to, to rise to the top of that. But it is also in a nominee, when we all say in polls, we want someone who can win, because obviously we don't want someone who's gonna lose, because that'd be a waste of time. Um, <laughs> but like part of it is, is like, how do you tell your story instead of just responding to Trump's story? Right. right? That's what we want in a nominee, right. who is not gonna be wrapped around the, the Trump axle the whole time. And I will say, the fact that the 37-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, the fourth largest city in that state, is able to rise to the point where people know who he is and he gets a loud applause in this room in New Hampshire, which happens to be an important state, is a credit to the fact, never change New Hampshire, <laughs> is a credit to his ability to not just have a good story, but to be able to communicate it. Yeah. What, Dan, so, what, wait, I, I just, like, what is it? Like, why do you think, what is the thing that has allowed Pete Buttigieg to break through? Because I don't know that you would see it in a transcript, right? Like, what, what exactly do you think has managed to cut through? Because he's very mild-mannered, right? That's, I think, part of what makes it impressive. But what do you think it is? I think it is, it is both a uh, question of message and a question of message delivery. And so on message, he very clearly knows why he's running. 
It is, ver it is very much about generational change, which separates it from everyone else in the field. Because most people who are running, not everyone, but most people have a very similar reason for why they're running. They think they'd be a better president than Donald Trump, which is a good reason to be president. It's like, but like, <laughs> but it's we'd be better true. presidents than Donald it's also Trump. A, yeah, exactly. It's true of 300 million Americans as well. Um, <laughs> but he also has been unafraid to go everywhere. He has been omnipresent in the media, and he understands that in this disaggregated media age that you have to speak to everyone all the time. So he does Positive America, which is obviously a great thing to do, but he's doing Preet Bahar's uh, podcast. He's on CNN. He's on the He said news. yes to everything. He says yes to everything. And which, what he understands careful. is that like most more traditional old school politicians think, I'm going to say one thing, and then it's going to be the media outlet's job to take that my message and communicate it to voters. Pete understands that to get your message out in this environment, you have to work harder and longer and speak more often than in any other time in American history. And he is doing that. Now, the question for him will be, he's now done all these interviews, what comes next? So right. he's going to have to find ways that is more than just telling the Pete Buttigieg story to get his message out. He's going to have to find substance, different contrasts, battle, you know, battles with Trump, battles with Democrats that allow that message to keep going for another year now. But he has understood this media environment better than anyone else running right now. And the oppo people are going to start coming his way and, and yeah, that, I mean, attacking that is all, him as much as they've been attacking some of the other front Well, that is the other thing is that up until this point, I think the other candidates have treated Mayor Pete as their non-threatening friend. Yep. Seems like a nice young man. We'd love to have He's him with debates. Yeah. Do you mean the we way you guys treat me? What's that? I was just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you're very threatening. <laughs> um, <laughs> So you terrify talk. me, Alyssa. No, I don't love you it. Scare me. You look beautiful. You scare me to my You're core. You're so thin. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about New Jersey's Cory Booker, um, oh. who was also a mayor of a city almost three times as large as South Bend. Um, went on to become a U.S. senator with some notable accomplishments around criminal justice reform, and now finds himself trailing candidates like Buttigieg in both <laughs> polls and fundraising. And he's in the middle of the pack. Um, What's, what's, what, what do you think of his speech, first of all, Tommy, you started talking about that, but um, what's his strategy to break out of the pack here? Me? Yeah. I mean, I don't know yet. That's the problem, right? I mean, I, I, I thought the speech wasn't as good as Cory Booker is, especially on paper, because you compare Mayor Pete to, to Cory Booker. Cory Booker is the mayor of a much bigger set, uh, city. Now he, with some success... Uh, he's he a is, great story to tell. He's a North. great story to tell about his time as mayor. He has lived his values. He he still lives in Newark in a low-income neighborhood. Uh, he was elected to be a U.S. senator, and he's done some impressive things. And he is someone who is he was brilliant. Uh, and you know, like I'm I'm I think he is a undervalued stock. I think he has enormous potential to break through because I think that a hopeful, optimistic message about love and, and uplifting people has the chance to be what people want to hear in a, an era of Trump, but we just haven't gotten there yet. What did you think, Love It? Like, you know, as you all know, I am for every candidate uh, during their announcement videos uh, <laughs> for at least 15 minutes thereafter until the glow fades. I... I am in in their speeches when I'm supposed to be emotional, I tend to be. Uh, I thought the, what made me excited about Cory Booker is in his announcement video, he reminded me about what makes Cory Booker interesting. And he does have a language about love that sometimes is a bit extra, but is him <laughs> and is compelling. And, and what, I was what I'm disappointed with when I see Cory Booker speak is when he sounds 
when he gives a speech that other politicians could give because mm -hmm. he's not other politicians. And so I don't need to hear a litany of Democratic positions that Hillary Clinton could take and would take and because they're good policies or another candidate might have on their roster too. And that will certainly be the Democratic platform no matter who's the nominee. You, tell, you say an interesting thing about the importance of love and how radical it be and how central it is to our politics. You talk about compassion for even people we disagree with and making it a point of difference with other candidates and talking about your, the importance of compromise. I want to know what that means because I do think it's interesting and I do think it's important. What do you mean what do you mean by bring people together in a deeper fundamental way in which you recognize uh, your opponents as human? Like what does that actually do and what are we not doing right? Because certainly you can't be saying that the way we bring people together is just by winning, right? We must be doing something wrong too. What is it? And I think that like, if he can start telling that deeper story, which I believe he's thought about. Because that's I, his, ra he's, he's staked the campaign that, on that rationale. Yes, which, yeah. yes. And I think that is, to Tommy's point, what makes Cory Booker special and different. And I think yeah. uh, that's what I want to hear moving forward. I think the sports equivalent of Cory Booker's speech is when you were down 20 points, you don't have to get all 20 points back in the second quarter. Right, it felt like that speech, which had a lot of really good points. Because there's, there's two more, there's two more quarters. Don't you need more than twenty? Because there's What's two that? more quarters. Don't you need more? <laughs> yes, than 20? because you, if you, you don't need to make them back right away because they'll be the third quarter and the fourth. Yeah, quarter. Yeah, get five points. So you get seven points, seven points, six points if you needed to. Yeah, yeah. That, that's Wait. why we bring you on the math. And like he didn't, have, you don't have to solve all your problems right now, right? And he was, try, I felt like he was trying to do a lot in that speech, and he. In, in doing a, trying to do too much in that speech, he lost the parts that are the best about Cory Booker, which right. is his story in Newark and where he wants to take the country. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I mean, he said towards the end of the speech, I'm the only senator that goes home and lives in a low-income community. And I was like, start with that. Right. <laughs> right. You know? um, so one last thing to talk about. We've gotten to specific advice sometimes. We've got very tactical in a way that I like, and I'm finding yeah, it just, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> we're trying to be helpful. No, I'm into like it. Said, we're pulling that lever for all of them. Yeah. Any one of them that walks in there. Um, <laughs> one last thing to talk about since we're here in New Hampshire. Um, as, I, as I said before, the state will hold the first in the nation primary. Applause. Um, but um, recently... Uh, Be more bashful about it. It's like you're bragging about this thing. The rest of us notice. We like voting too. <laughs> finish my sentence, but recently <laughs> um, us assholes in California decided to move our primary up to March 3rd um, and, our, yeah, and our early voting will begin about a week before the New Hampshire primary. And it'll be 78 and sunny. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, how does um, <laughs> I got a real laugh, love it. How Good does California moving up, Texas moving up, states like that, how does that affect New Hampshire and Iowa's and South Carolina and Nevada's influence on the primary process? Here's a rule that you can take to the bank. Okay. In a world when you can take a lot of rules to the bank, which is whatever the intention of any Democratic Party primary reform is, will have the opposite effect. <laughs> <laughs> so the goal was to <laughs> reduce the influence of Iowa and New Hampshire in particular. And so we'll move these giant states that are too expensive and too big to organize in. We'll move them to two days after, the, or three days after the South Carolina primary. Therefore making it the four early states massively more important. Because you, in a, in a party, uh, in a field of 19 people, you're important, we know it. Um, 
in a field of 19 people. You're no Iowa. You, no, there is no candidate. <laughs> <laughs> Boo, we don't like reminded, yeah. being reminded that we're second. It makes us feel bad. <laughs> I mean, I just want to say I've always come to New Hampshire, never Iowa. So. <laughs> what, is Unbelievable. what is this devolved into? Yeah, I know. We're I'm like, sorry. New Hampshire. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> Point me is that no candidate is going to be able to skip Iowa and New Hampshire to campaign in California. Yeah. The, the nominee will almost certainly be someone who won either Iowa or New Hampshire because you need the momentum of winning one of those two states, if not both of them, to get the name ID and the funding you need to run real campaigns in a state as large as California and Texas. Yeah. Um, Tommy, states like New Hampshire and Iowa, uh, where you lived for years, Obama's press secretary, while you have all that Iowa love, um, do get criticism for their early status because they're small, um, because they're not as representative as the population as a whole. Um, why are these early contests valuable and worth having? Um, or maybe you think they're not. No, I do. So <laughs> Discuss. Dan, Dan's point is so funny because also it's like Democrats are like, let's reduce the role of money in politics by making the two most populous, biggest states in the country earlier in the process, therefore increasing the need to advertise in them and raise money. But I digress. That was not your question. <laughs> um, my year in Iowa, which is obviously rose-colored glasses, I look back on it, but was, was marked by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of town halls with incredibly well-informed, well-educated voters who threw fastballs at Barack Obama all day, every day, and made him a better candidate, right? Like, the first time I heard about some of the most onerous, problematic provisions in the Patriot Act were in a backyard in Iowa, and I was like, oh, fuck, I hope he knows what that farmer is asking about. And luckily, <laughs> he did because he was a constitutional law professor. So I think... <laughs> I hope, I hope, I hope truly but that we never Tommy. lose, we never lose the part of the political process that is mom and pop and some candidate driving around in a, in a van doing five stops in, in cafes and restaurants and shit. Like, Are you going to announce? <laughs> <laughs> Which is why tonight I have to tell you. No, it's like, so look, I was 90% white. That is... That is not representative of the country. It's not representative of the Democratic Party. I think like there are real representation problems uh, that the Democratic Party has sought to solve by moving up uh, Nevada and California. South Carolina. And, and, no, the, by moving up those states. Oh. And South Carolina is, is a much larger African-American population. But I do think that the way politics is practiced in some of the early states, the way that voters in the press have real access to these candidates to ask them questions is incredibly valuable. It makes them better candidates, better presidents, and it's a good way to vet them. We don't want campaigns that are run on television all the time. No, it sucks. <laughs> it's just bad. No. Um, just Twitter. All campaigns on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> RTs and faves. Um, all right. When we come back, we'll have Governor Jay Inslee. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. 
And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com. He is the governor of Washington State, and now he's running for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States, Jay Inslee. How are you? I'm happy to be here and looking forward to getting everybody to the Game of Thrones as soon as we can. So. Yeah. No spoilers. Yeah, Don't no yell spoilers. anything. No um, It is all about climate change, though, I have to say. <laughs> it's true. Um, so we have a – Dan did a longer interview with you as part of our candidate series earlier today, so uh, that will be out on Tuesday, but we'll do a little short interview now. Um, I noticed that you were, you were one of the first two or three candidates um, to issue a statement in support of Ilhan Omar over the weekend. Um, what made you act so fast? What was your thought process when you saw Donald Trump's tweet? Uh, outrage, number outrage. one. And two, a consistent uh, pattern of how I've responded to his incredible hatred and divis divisiveness. Uh, I was the first governor. Thank you. Uh, I was the first governor to say we should accept Syrian refugees. This has been inhumane what Trump has done to refugees. Uh, I was, when he announced his Muslim ban, I went right to the airport to try to reunite families, something I believe very strongly. And this was an obvious attack because he cannot stand, he just can't stand the thought that we could have a, a woman of color wearing a hijab in the United States Congress. I can stand that. We believe that diversity is a strength. And so that was the right response when he exposed her personally to violence. And by the way, that was not just an attack on her. It was an attack on every single, single Muslim in America, including people in the service, in the armed service of the United States. So it was the right thing to do, and I'm glad uh, others joined me. Do you, do you think when he does stuff like that, he is intentionally inciting violence? Or do you think he's just not thinking and being his oafish self and tweeting shit like that? You know, I'd never want to go into that dark space it's between his smart. ears, believe it's me. But, smart. Uh, listen, we know for a certainty that he has an interest in just trying to stir up his base. Uh, I think he has demonstrated a callous uh, indifference to humanity in so many different ways that I don't think it would bother him if, in fact, it did result in violence. That's a really hard thing to say. It's a very hard thing to say, but I believe that it is true. So it is our responsibility now to do everything possible to restore democracy and justice. And that's why uh, uh, I intend to uh, make him a blip in history in 2020. Excellent. That is my intention. Um, uh, I saw you on Meet the Press this morning talking about Trump's uh, so-called threat to send asylum seekers to sanctuary cities. Obviously, Seattle is one, and you welcome this. Um, 
On the broader question of immigration reform, um, you know, uh, one of the candidates running, Julian Castro, has put out a detailed immigration plan, um, and he has a proposal to decriminalize unauthorized border crossings so that they'd be treated as a civil offense and not a criminal offense. What do you think of that proposal? You know, I haven't thought a lot about that, but by the way, I just want to mention Trump has, quote, threatened us by sending refugees. Go ahead and send them. That doesn't threaten us at all. We know refugees become part of our yeah. community. I just want to say that. So, um, look, we need truly comprehensive immigration reform. We have 11 million people. Some of the hardest working people in my state need to have a path to citizenship, number one. Number two, we have to stop Donald Trump from treating dreamers like poker chips. These are some of the most ambitious people. Yeah. And I, I have been very successful getting them a way to finance college education. I'm happy about that. We know we have to increase the, the capacity we have to fairly process asylum seekers. We know we have to do that. And I think that could be the most single most important thing that we can do. You won't have to make the changes that you just suggested as long as people have a fair day in court. Now, the other thing we need to do is a lot of these people are refugees, not just asylum seekers. They are climate refugees. They're the tip of the iceberg. So here you have Donald Trump, who calls climate change a hoax, refusing to do anything about the thing that is driving migration and will drive millions of people as climate refugees in the future. It is time to have a president who will make defeating climate change the number one job of the United States, and we have that with the results of migration. Um, so obviously, as you just said, and a lot of Democratic, well, most of the Democratic candidates have said this, um, you want to make sure we have a path to citizenship for the 11 million or so undocumented immigrants who are here. You want to make sure that dreamers can become citizens. What do you do about immigration enforcement? Would you go back to the enforcement policies of the Obama years, or do you think we need something different? Well, I think that we need to uh, be responsible on a variety of measures. Number one, uh, we have to be human on how we treat humans and stop separating children from their parents, number one. Number two, we have to follow the law, which today allows asylum for legitimate purposes. And those folks deserve, and we deserve, to have a system that allows them in a timely fashion have their cases adjudicated. That means a lot more hearing judges. By the way, Trump says he wants to get rid of judges. We need more judges to rein this guy in. I'm glad we're 18 and 0 in our lawsuits against him right now, by the way. That's a pretty good track record. Yeah. So uh, we need to have uh, not the wall, which we know is a vanity project. Can you imagine how many people we could put to school and how much health care we could we could uh, do with all that money going to that wall. Yeah. And it's interesting to me because even the Republicans rejected the wall, right? Even the Republicans rejected the wall. And I'm hopeful that the courts are going to throw it out. Uh, maybe that'll be 19-0 and 0, or 18-0 <laughs> right now. Um, so, you know, we were just talking about how Democratic candidates stand out in a crowded field. Um, you're doing that by focusing on climate change, you just mentioned, as it's the issue, it's the reason why you're running for president. Um, it is now one of the top issues for Democratic voters, um, but it's still not being covered or talked about at a level, I think, that's commensurate with the challenge. I'm sure that you would agree. Um, why do you think that is, and what are some of the strategies you've pursued in Washington to keep this issue at the top of the agenda? How do you make people care about this? Well, uh, what makes people care about this is the disasters they're seeing. Uh, I personally try to help make sure people understand this. Uh, 
I was in Hamburg, Iowa, the day before yesterday. Town of about 1,100. It was founded in 1878 or 58. I can't remember which. Never had a flood. Now it's been inundated by the flood of the Missouri River and, and substantially destroyed. I was in Seminole Springs uh, in California in the foothills of Los Angeles where 100 people with mobile homes, beautiful little community, devastated. And uh, I went there to bring attention to this issue. And I met a woman named Marsha Moss that sticks up out in my mind. She asked me to come see her home or what was left of it. And I went up and looked at it. It was just this pile of you know, melted aluminum. But what she told me was interesting. She said, uh, I want to show you my entire net worth. I have lost everything in life, because you know, a lot of these people were uninsured in their mobile homes. But I have this. I have this driveway. I built this driveway by hand, and she did this kind of intricate rock work that she was very proud of. And she said, I'm proud of this. It's still something I have, number one. And number two, uh, I have a measure of hope, because you have come here today as a governor, and you have said that you're going to make defeating climate change so that these forest fires don't devastate other cities, and that is hope we need. And I'm running for President of the United States fundamentally because I want to be able to look at my grandchildren in the eye and my last day on earth and said I did everything I could to save them from the scourge of climate change. And I'm going to make this job number one if I'm given this honor because if it's not job number one, it won't get done. And there is one candidate saying that, and that's me, and I'm ready to defeat climate change as President of the United States. So that's what I'm doing. Um, what, in your opinion, is the most exciting, promising climate policy that we're not talking enough about? Well, I think the, the one of, I've, I've learned two things. And look, I've been at this for 20 years. Yeah. I co-authored a book on this in 2007. It was about... It's called The Paulist Fire, Igniting America's Clean Energy Economy. By the way, the movie rights are still available for anyone who's interested. <laughs> Snap them up. <laughs> uh, you know, I founded the U.S. Climate Alliance with Jerry Brown uh, and, and Governor Cuomo. We now have 23 states who are in the Paris Agreement. We wanted to demonstrate to the world that there is intelligent life in the United States. <laughs> and we were able to do that, okay? So I... I ran for Congress in 1992 saying that we should, re we should limit carbon dioxide. So I've been at this for a long time. I've learned two things. Number one, the, the most important renewable fuel is perseverance. We just cannot give up in the face of frustration because this is our last chance. We have kicked this can down the road for 30 years. We have one more shot to save the planet. It's the next presidency. And that's why we, we have to understand this is a matter of urgent peril where we only have one chance we have to take it. The second thing I've learned is that there are multiple ways to skin this cat. And that's good news. Yeah. So in my state, we've built a $6 billion wind turbine industry because of a renewable portfolio standard. In my state, we're going to have 50,000 uh, cars that are all electric here in the next several months. In my state, we're spinning off businesses that are clean uh, fuel uh, businesses. In my state, in my house passed my 100% clean electricity bill. We're going to have 100% clean electricity with no fossil fuels in the decades to come. And we're closing, and we're closing, we are closing our only remaining uh, coal plant, and we are getting ourselves off of coal-based electricity. But there is more to do. One of the things we have to do is we have to end kaput 
end the gravy train of $27 billion of tax breaks going to the fossil fuel industry. We need to end that right now. We need to, we need to stop we need to stop, allow the pillaging of our public lands and stop these leases of giveaways of fossil fuel off of our public lands. Now, we need a new president to make sure that that happens. Right. Um, obviously, so the promise of the, of the Green New Deal is twofold, right? One is we do everything we need to do to tackle climate change. The other is we do so in a way that ensures not only economic opportunity, but economic justice for underserved communities. Um, and that's everything from a job guarantee to health care to making sure that, you know, underserved communities, communities of color don't bear the brunt of the transition. Do you think that second part is absolutely necessary? Um, or do you think that we can focus on the, on the climate uh, challenge and that it would be nice if we can focus on this too on the economic side? Or how, how do you see this? I think there's two fundamental parts of the American character that need to be imbued in this national mission, and it is a national mission. Uh, number one, we have to make sure we have not just a transition, but we need a just transition. We know we have to transition off of a carbon fuel-based economy to one that is based on clean energy. And in that period, we have to have justice and can have justice to use this system of reducing income inequality, of righting along of the ancient wrongs we had in our society, in taking care of the marginalized communities. It's usually uh, people in poverty and communities of color who are the first victims of climate change. And so we need to target them for relief and protection in our infrastructure in a variety of ways. We've got to help them like I'm doing in my 100% clean bill. We're giving protection for low-income people to help them with their utility bills, for instance. We have another bill called the HEAL Act, which will map the state to find out where these communities of poverty are being injured by climate change. But we also have to think about justice in another regard. We cannot forget the people who have worked their lives in industries that are going to go through, through transition. And we have, to, we have to take care of their needs and their aspirations. These are great people. They've worked hard all their life. They've built the American economy. And we can't forget them. So let me give you an example. We're closing our, uh, our, first coal, our last coal-fired plant. But we just didn't shut it off and tell those laters, all those workers to go fish. We created a $55 million fund to make sure that those people who might not be able to continue their careers to get into another career and get the training that's necessary and a plan to help small businesses to grow, and a plan to help the local communities in their infrastructure. We should put justice into this transition. I'm committed to that. Now, the second thing I think we need is optimism and confidence. And I'm an optimistic person. I believe we can do this. We innovate, we create, we build. Today, clean energy jobs are growing twice as fast as the average in the rest of the economy. The number one uh, fast-growing uh, uh, jobs is in solar installer. The number two is wind turbine technician. Donald Trump is wrong. Wind turbines do not cause cancer. They cause jobs, okay? They cause jobs. Statement. That's what they cause. So we need to have, we need to look at this as an enormous economic opportunity. And this is how, this is how we win. Look, I was Democratic chair of the Democratic governors this year. We flipped seven seats from red to blue. We won. We won. By the way, that was right in the heartland. Michigan. Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Kansas. We flipped these seats because we took a message to people of economic hope associated a large part by clean energy jobs. This is how we win. We know how to win, and I'm confident in our ability to do so.
Um, one last question. Uh, you recently said that Washington State has America's best marijuana. Um, <laughs> is that something that you hear? <laughs> how, how, how can you prove that? Well, it was... It was <laughs> I can tell you Curious. reasonably good on two occasions in the 1970s, <laughs> but since then... <laughs> Perfect. That's all, I was, that's all I was looking for. Hey, look, um, but before we go, I want to say something. My candidacy is not just about climate change. It's about a progressive template for progressive values in the United States. Uh, under my governorship, we've done the best paid family leave in America, the best minimum wage, the first net neutrality bill in the United States to guard our freedom of the Internet, the best gender pay equity. We're radicals in Washington. We think women should get paid the same as men the best Reproductive Parity Act. And you know what? This year I got a 12% increase for educators in my state, and I'm very proud of this. Very good. So we've done some good things. Yeah. We want to take that to the nation. Excellent. Um, Governor Inslee, thank you so much. You want to stick around for a little game? Yeah, you bet. All I'm, right. I'm game. You Let's bet. Let's do it. New Hampshire. Live free or die in a car accident because it's the only state where you aren't required to wear a seatbelt. <laughs> Live free or go back to Massachusetts. Live free and ski on basically ice. Yikes. It melts, it freezes, it melts, it freezes. What do you think is, what do you think is happening? <laughs> and sure... New Hampshire might seem like the South snuck up into the woods and decided to cosplay as liberals. <laughs> but you're also hiding a secret. New Hampshire is a fantastic place to vote. <laughs> the, voter <laughs> the voter turnout in New Hampshire was in the top five for the 2016 election with nearly 70% of eligible voters casting ballots. A big reason New Hampshire traditionally has made it easy for Granite Staters to register and cast a ballot. But don't worry. Last year, Republicans passed a lot of change, all that. The New, New Hampshire Tonians, I believe is how is the word, uh, will will need to pay to get a New Hampshire driver's license and register their car in the state. If a student can't afford that, they can't afford to vote. So let's talk about New Hampshire's proud tradition of voting and the Republicans' plans to screw it up in a game we're calling Vote Free or Die, like how the old man of the mountain killed himself when he found out Trump would be president. <laughs> uh, would, <laughs> would someone out there like to play the game? Hi. Hi, what's your name? Corey. What was it? Corey. Courtney? C-O-R-I. See, Corey. Yep, yep. Uh, I'm a teacher. You're a teacher. <laughs> what do you teach? English. English? Uh-huh. And are you from New Hampshire? No. Okay. <laughs> but every time, like clockwork... Second someone says they're not from here in a game, you turn into a Trump rally. <laughs> you guys have your cards. You're ready to play. Governor, thank you so much for enduring this entire thing I just did. <laughs> Question number one. 
New Hampshire Republicans claim the, the new residency requirement is designed to prevent voter fraud, but voter fraud is already a crime and already extremely rare. Why might Republicans actually want to keep college students from the polls? Is it A? Have you ever tried to do literally any human activity in a college town? Just a bunch of fully grown adults in hoodies and flannel pajamas with no voice modulation who think they're tired because they're hungover and have never actually been tired their whole goddamn lives. <laughs> or is it B? Young people prefer Democrats. In 2016, 18 to 29-year-old voters in New Hampshire made up over 20% of the electorate, and they preferred Clinton over Trump by an eight-point margin. Clinton won the state by just 0.3%, roughly 3,000 votes. Or is it C? Republicans were mostly interested in keeping out the jocks from Kappa Sigma after spanking Moose Pants Governor Sununu. Or is it D? <laughs> One Republican legislator was quoted saying, these very handsome athletes with their perfect toned arms have no business making me, I mean my wife, uncomfortable. <laughs> or is it E? If college kids wanted to vote, they should have thought of that before turning 18 while America was sliding into a kind of post-empire, semi-literate, authoritarian decline. <laughs> what do you think, Corey? B. It's B, you got it. Bill, your own Bill O'Brien said to a Tea Party gathering in 2011, this is what he said when he was New Hampshire Speaker of the House, the kids are coming out of the schools and basically doing what I did when I was a kid, which is voting liberal. That's what kids do. <laughs> God bless them. <laughs> Question two. In 2012, Republicans passed the first voter ID law in New Hampshire. If voters didn't have an approved form of photo ID, they could sign an affidavit or have an election official verify their identity, which doubled wait times at polling places. But the law wasn't suppressy enough, so Republicans had another go in 2015. Just in time for the 2016 election, New Hampshire voters without an approved form of photo ID can only cast a ballot if you let a poll worker do what? Is it A? Tell you why Game of Thrones is totally overrated, which is so annoying it's anti-American. Is it B? Spend one night with their wife. <laughs> Voting rights organizations were quick to denounce this policy, calling it truly an indecent proposal. <laughs> so it's like a weird 90s movie thing. Or is it C? Take your picture. Voting rights groups called the law an attempt to intimidate voters, and over 100 New Hampshire election officials criticized this bizarre rule. Or is it D? Give you a Biden-style shoulder rub. <laughs> and then film a three-minute non-apology about it. Okay, could be that. Or is it E? Use your HBO Now login, even though he just said he hates Game of Thrones, because it turns out he actually wants to watch old episodes of Hung. <laughs> <laughs> Weird reason. What do you think? I hope it's C. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Last question. In spite of all this, New Hampshire's 70% turnout uh, in 2016 is above the national average, 56%. But why should people from New Hampshire feel bad anyway? <laughs> is it A? Granite State? You're named after countertops. <laughs> <laughs> or is it B? Here's a reason to feel bad. New Hampshire doesn't have a signature food. Visit basically any other state and people will be like, you got to try the gumbo. Or we put crackers on our spaghetti here. We're fucking insane. <laughs> But New Hampshire has what? Lobster? Sorry, that belongs to Maine. Yeah. Clam chowder? Well, you also have Susan Collins, so careful. Um, 
clam chowder? You really stuck it to those Mainers out there. Wow. Look at you, huh? Wipe that smile off your goddamn faces. Wait, clam chowder? Nope, that's Massachusetts. So what's left? We saw Chipotle on the way in. Does that work? No signature food. Oh, you know what? You said 15 foods and none of them are famous. <laughs> or is it C? You try sharing a 250-mile border with a bunch of Subaru driving granola munchers. (laughs) (laughs) Granola munchers over there in the Soviet Republic of Vermont. (laughs) We need... We need a wall. And Vermont is going to pay for it. (laughs) (laughs) Or is it D? Pretty lucky that primary is late, huh, Governor? (laughs) (laughs) Plenty of countries do better than 70% turnout, including Hungary, Finland, New Zealand, Israel, Dorn, the Iron Islands, (laughs) most of Westeros. South Korea, Australia, and Belgium because they have laws that encourage voting instead of trying to make it harder. Or is it E? One reason and one reason only. Massachusetts has the Kennedys. You have this in your news. (laughs) (laughs) What are you booing exactly? Think about what you're booing. Think about what you're booing. Face what you're booing. (laughs) (laughs) There's a question in there with an obvious answer. Did you figure it out? Travis told me it was D. (laughs) (laughs) You got it, Corey. You bought a parachute gift card and a butcher box gift card. Get some sheets, get some meat. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Governor, for playing our game and for being here. That was so fun. Thank you so much. We try, you know, we try. Thank you, Governor Inslee. Thank you, Concord, for coming. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Thank you, Alyssa Mastromonaco. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. 
I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high.